My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Nobody in your family tree has ever committed a horrible crime and gotten away with it. Have they? Are you sure? I am asking because if they have, and if you don't know about it, and you or someone else in the family thinks it might be cool to do one of those family tree DNA tests. Well. Today we are here to announce that the Toronto Police Service has arrested an individual for the 1983 murders of Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice. Last Thursday, November 24th, this individual was arrested and taken into custody in Moosonee, Ontario, and brought back to Toronto on Friday, November 25th. Just like that, last week, an arrest in a 40-year-old cold case, a murder of two women. Thanks to an investigative technique called genetic genealogy that is growing in popularity across North America. No, the police did not have the alleged killer's DNA on file. But someone in their family had somewhere along the way submitted their own DNA to a database and had either asked for or simply forgot to opt out of, an option that lets police use it to solve crimes. Now, this is well beyond the DNA evidence you are used to seeing on TV, and it raises all sorts of questions. So how does genetic genealogy work? How is it legal and ethical? And are we about to see a flood of old crimes solved because someone thought it would be fun to offer up their DNA to a database. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jennifer Pagliaro is a crime reporter with the Toronto Star. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. This is, uh, as you mentioned to me, a bit of a strange one. Yeah, you know... True crime is always a fascinating space, and it's an interesting job. And when it kind of converges with science and pop culture and and all of that stuff, uh, people really pay attention. Um, And this has been one of those stories. Well, let's start with sort of what people might already picture when we talk about using DNA to solve crimes. What has traditionally been the case with how police use DNA to find suspects? And and usually in the ways that we've seen it used in TV shows or that police have actually used it, what limits does that approach have? Yeah, totally. So like a lot of the CSI stuff on TV, there's some truth to all of it, right? So people probably know that we have DNA that kind of works as your personal avatar. Like it's your identifier. Uh, It's unique to you. And what police 
typically have done since it's been possible to test an individual's DNA is you can compare one DNA sample to another. Right. So let's say you have DNA that you find at a crime scene. There is a drop of blood. Someone breaks into a house. They cut themselves, you know, getting in through the window and police are able to collect that blood. They run DNA testing on it. And later they catch a guy, you know, he's got, he's scraped up. And they have reason to believe that he broke into the house. He doesn't have an alibi. They get a sample of his DNA. Maybe they swab his cheek. They compare those two samples. It's a match. Boom. There he goes. That's going to be used against him at trial. That's the common way that we know DNA is used when it's collected from a crime scene like that. Now, before we get into the recent cases and... The new way that police are using DNA, um, and then the ethics of all of this, maybe you could first explain this term, genetic genealogy. What does that mean? So genetic genealogy basically is a way of testing specific genetic markers. And genetic markers are part of your DNA. They're, again, they're unique to you, but they can be compared to people in your extended family tree. And that has sort of taken off in the last, I would say, probably decade because humans are just, I think, naturally curious about our own history. Sometimes we're estranged from family members. And so it's become a way of sort of understanding where we come from. And in some cases has really important health applications um, because our genetic markers are now being used to see if we are uh, preconditioned for certain types of disease and illness. But in terms of crime, there's been some big breakthroughs in American cases in the past few years. And police here have recently credited this approach with finding suspects in a couple of very high-profile Ontario cold cases. Can you tell me about those cases? Yeah. So there's two cases that really stand out. The first one that Ontarians may remember is uh, a young girl named Christine Jessup. Uh, She went missing from her Queensville home, uh, that's Queensville, Ontario, uh, in the 1980s. And then she was um, fatally stabbed and it was believed that she was abducted. And so, of course, you know, in the case of a, a, a child being killed, that really, I think, shocked the province and the country and beyond. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, the kind of first case where we see this type of DNA evidence come into play. And then more recently, uh, a story that my colleague Wendy Gillis and I wrote is there was two cold cases in Toronto, two women who were seemingly unconnected, Susan Tice and Aaron Gilmore, who were both uh, killed in 1983. And once some DNA testing became available, police were able to link the fact that they believed one person was responsible for both of their murders. So that's the more recent case uh, involving DNA that I think has really captured people's attention. And can you walk us through how uh, DNA was used to to find the suspects in these cases? Yeah, so the Christine Jessup case is really interesting uh, because there was actually, in that instance, uh, a wrongful conviction that kind of played out before we ever get to the genetic genealogy. Right. Um, so people will probably recognize the name Guy Paul Moran, who was 
Christine Jessup's neighbor. He was, he lived next door to the family and police initially pegged him as the killer. He went to trial, but when uh, advanced DNA testing became available during the appeals process of his case, it actually exonerated him. And that was like a really big news story. But then of course you have a young girl who was murdered and you don't have a killer anymore. You you don't have a viable suspect. Mm -hmm. And so as uh, DNA testing improves, police actually used uh, genetic genealogy because they did have uh, a DNA sample of what they believed to be a suspect. And they were actually able to link it to a man named Calvin Hoover, who was actually dead at the time that they discovered him. But he was someone that police had never suspected in the initial part of the investigation. But he is now believed to be responsible um, for the murder. And of course, since he uh, is dead, he was never tried for the murder. But we understand that he was likely the killer. Now, interestingly, the case that we wrote about just last week is fascinating because you have, the, again, the case of two women, uh, Susan Tice and Erin Gilmore, assaulted and killed in uh, Toronto in the 1980s. Actually, these murders took place um, just before Christy and Jessup went missing. So we're talking about the same time period here. But these became cold cases. They they never had uh, viable suspects. They were listed on Toronto Police's cold case website all these years. Okay. And we just found out from a press conference that they were able, again, to use genetic genealogy. Uh, it's a lab actually in Texas that Toronto Police has used to do this testing. And they were able to link the DNA that matched the DNA from both of these crime scenes to uh, a man in Moosonee, Ontario, Joseph George Sutherland. And again, this is a crime uh, which happened decades ago, and he is now in jail and awaiting the legal process. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. So now we get to possibly the most fascinating part of this. Where do police get this DNA? You mentioned one of the suspects is dead. They're not uh, taking DNA from him. How do they find these people and why is it a lab in Texas? What happens is they send the DNA that they have on file from these cold cases. So let's take the Aaron Gilmore and the Susan Tice case. So they have DNA on file that they've kept on file. In some cases, it's a very small amount of DNA. And so, you know, they have to be somewhat judicious in, in how they test it because it's not an infinite sample. And there is a lab in Texas called Othram, and they specialize in this kind of uh, genetic genealogy testing for forensic law enforcement purposes. Mm -hmm. So they actually specialize in a special kind of testing where even samples that other labs say are too degraded 
to test. They may have been contaminated with some kind of bacteria or they just often these samples can degrade over time. We're talking about cold cases that are decades old. They actually specialize in being able to get a usable uh, test out of this type of DNA. Right. Toronto police sent uh, DNA to be tested so that they could identify these genetic markers of whoever this suspect was. Okay, so what do they do next? Well, the problem with these cases is that police have this existing data bank. When someone is convicted of a crime, uh, sometimes their DNA goes into a national offender's data bank. Right. So this is a database of convicted people's DNA the police have access to. And this is what people think of when we're talking about police tracking killers through DNA. Right. But here's the problem. Sometimes the person you're looking for has never been convicted of a crime. They've gotten away with this for a long time and they're not in that databank. So what do police do? Well, typically they have to turn to other investigative methods. You know, some of those are knocking on doors, like very traditional stuff that you see on TV. Mm -hmm. But of course, sometimes people aren't talking and sometimes you run out of leads. So what's happened in the last decade or so is the popularity of websites like Ancestry.com, 23andMe. And Mm. I'm sure your listeners have seen these ads on TV or the radio where you can get an at-home testing kit you swab yourself, you send your kit back to the company, and they actually do some genetic marker testing so that you can potentially connect with people in your family tree, you can trace your family tree, and you can sometimes uh, sign up to do some of that health analysis that we talked about earlier. Right. And you can see the draw of that, right? Like I said, sometimes people are estranged, they're adopted. Oh, these things are popular. Totally. You see so many ads for them, you hear people talking about them. And the interesting thing here is that at a certain point, a few people started to realize that this had law enforcement applications. But it gets a little more complicated because, uh, you know, I talked to a spokesperson from 23andMe. They do not release their raw DNA for law enforcement. So so they can't just search the 23andMe database. Exactly. So people shouldn't be worried about that. If you want to use 23andMe, your data is not being, you know, sent off to police for investigation. That's not what's happening. But once you get your DNA profile back from these companies, you have the option to download your own raw data. Then there are public genealogy websites. These are websites like GED Match, where you can actually upload your own DNA profile. And now you might be saying, why would I do that? Yes, that's my next question. Here, have my DNA. Yes. And so I I really didn't understand this at first. But in doing some research, I realized, so you signed up for 23andMe, you got your profile, and you're matching, potentially looking at your family tree with other 23andMe users. Awesome. There's a lot of people that use that website. And you may find what you're looking for, you know, your curiosity is is, uh, is satisfied. Mm -hmm. But on these public databases like GED Match, 
anyone can upload their raw data. So now you can compare your data, not just to the other people who used 23andMe, but to people who used other competing companies to analyze their data. So suddenly the pool of people that you can potentially, you know, search in your family tree for has exponentially increased. So then what happens is when you upload your data to a website like GDmatch, there is an option, GED Match says, where you can actually opt out of what they call their law enforcement program. They actually have a separate portal. It's a what they call pro-professional portal that is actually set up for law enforcement to log in, upload their genetic marker testing like they would have gotten with Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice, and look for a match on the public database. Huh. And that's exactly what Toronto police did. And what happens is they don't get a direct match to the suspect necessarily, although not impossible. Likely, if you've committed a crime, you probably didn't sign up for, you know, 23andMe. You never know. It's a free country. Sure. (laughs) But of course, there's this multi-generational family tree on there. Right. And so what we understand is that someone in Joseph George Sutherland's family tree at some point uploaded their raw DNA profile to a site like GED Match. And so police would have found that person, which would have led them to the family, which obviously would have narrowed the list of suspects uh, considerably. Yeah, there's a lot of police work that still has to happen, I think is the, the interesting part for me is it's not like they press a button, there's a match and off they go to arrest someone. Right. They have to trace back through the family tree, you know, who would have been old enough at the time to commit a murder like this? Who could have been in Toronto at the time to commit a murder like this? Hmm. And so they have to go looking for still a, a possible sub- suspect using classic investigative techniques. Now, in the Joseph George Sutherland case, something interesting happened, which we still don't have full details on. But at a certain point, police collected enough evidence to ask a judge for a DNA warrant. And that works like pretty much any other warrant. You know, you can get a warrant to search someone's house. This warrant allowed police to take a DNA sample from Sutherland by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's how they would have gotten uh, a more definitive match, allegedly, and that will be uh, what they would have submitted uh, to use in his um, criminal case. But for the first part of this, the searching of the database that would have led them to a family member that would have narrowed their scope, they don't need a warrant for that. That's something because uh, whether or not people quite understand what they're doing, they are opting in to allow police to use their DNA in this way. Yeah, that's where this gets like really interesting. And I think there are a lot of uh, legal and ethical questions. Yeah. You know, you can understand why someone, you know, an innocent person who's a well-meaning citizen goes onto websites like these, you know, out of curiosity or they're interested in their own family history and is uh, working with their own DNA profile, which they have willingly submitted. But Imagine being a family member and not knowing that a distant relative has committed a heinous crime and then realizing that you are the reason that police were able to arrest them. It's a pretty tricky bit of investigative work. Um, And as far as we know at this point, police are not circumventing any Canadian laws to do it, but it it certainly raises a lot of questions about um, willing participation and, and that kind of thing. 
I am now picturing somebody uh, presenting a Christmas gift of a family tree and telling the family gathering that they did this DNA thing and somebody is sitting in the corner going, oh, no. Totally. Yeah, because think about it. You know, people, there are these cold cases for for decades and decades and people keep these secrets, especially from the people they love. And it's, yeah, it's thinking about that conversation around the dinner table. Man, that's, uh, that's tough. I don't know if you would know the answer to this. And, and maybe it's something that will only kind of come out after this ends up being used uh, in more ways. But what are the downsides to this? And I know, you know, when we talked about Christine Jessup, we talked about a wrongful conviction. Like, how sure are we in this relatively new technology that... Um, you know, we're now one or two or three steps away from a match, right? Yeah, well, it's not uh, impossible to conceive of a situation where police still get this wrong. And that is why we have a legal process. You know, you're not locked away forever once your DNA is, you know, allegedly matched to that from a crime scene. You still have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is in fact a murderer. But think about the example uh, a private investigator shared with me when I was interviewing her for this story, where she talked about a case where police had narrowed uh, their genetic marker test down to two brothers. Now, those are people that share incredibly similar uh, genetic markers. And at that point, they had to use classic techniques like, you know, does one of the brothers have an alibi? Uh, Is it possible that one of the brothers could not have committed this murder? And that's where I think things get like really tricky and it's not foolproof. And you still have to go through, I think, that process where the onus is on the prosecutor to prove to a jury or to a judge that this is the person uh, who is in fact guilty. And, you know, I think DNA has probably pushed us away from what would have been more frequent wrongful convictions. But I know um, organizations like Innocent Canada and, and, uh, and similar American organizations will tell you that wrongful convictions still do happen. Has anyone raised ethical concerns about this? And I mean, you know, people are opting. I understand there are no legal concerns. This is something someone's chosen to do. But the rest of the family hasn't chosen that. Yeah, I think that's where the ethical questions come into play is, you know, you by uploading your DNA are actually exposing your extended family tree potentially to this kind of law enforcement search. Again, if you're using the public database and you've opted into a law enforcement program. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that just by signing up to, you know, a site like 23andMe, that's what happens. This is, again, that extra step that people are taking to upload to a public database. But yeah, there's a lot of questions there. Like sometimes people, you know, also don't want to be found, right? Mm -hmm. Like in a non-legal context, like estranged family members are sometimes estranged for a reason. And so there's a lot of really interesting questions that I think arise from this type of like ancestry searching that we haven't really started to contend with. So how hard is it to do this for a cold case? And I mean, the logical last question is, are we about to start seeing a massive wave of cold case suspects being announced as as police use this method for whatever they have on file? Yeah, that's a great question. It's like the question that kind of led me to the follow-up story that I did, which, as I learned, we're not about to see necessarily the floodgates open 
And it's not that there aren't cold cases primed for this kind of investigative technique. It's just that there isn't a huge range of labs that currently do this work. So my understanding is the labs that are doing this work see a backlog, right? Because we're talking about, for example, Othram, an American lab in the States, who is dealing with uh, a number of U.S. cold cases, I imagine, as well as uh, Canadian police services who have discovered their services. And so my understanding is that police currently have to sort of triage the cases that they send for this type of testing um, because there is such a wait. But I think it is almost certain that we will see more headlines like this, both in the U.S. and in Canada, you know, just in the last week or so, we've seen uh, a number of cases solved this way. And it's, I think, only a matter of time. Jennifer, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Jennifer Pegliero, crime reporter at the Toronto Star. That was the big story. I wanted to share with you a piece of reader feedback we got about Monday's episode on the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. This comes from a listener named Sarah. She writes, one of the consequences of designating Iran's Revolutionary Guard, a terrorist organization that you mentioned briefly but didn't delve into, is the potential effect such a designation could have on innocent bystanders, such as dual Canadian-Iranian nationals. As a U.S. immigration lawyer, I am very familiar with these consequences. The Trump administration declared the IRGC a terrorist organization in 2019, as our guest mentioned. Since then, I have represented numerous Canadian-Iranian dual nationals who have been denied entry into the U.S. because they served in the Iranian military decades ago. I have even represented dual nationals who lived and worked in the U.S. for years until the terrorist designation led the government to deny their work authorization and declare them inadmissible in the U.S. They had to uproot their lives, give up their jobs, and relocate back to Canada. That's a first-person perspective from somebody who works with the very problems what we spoke about might create. Thank you, Sarah, for writing to us. You can find The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can now subscribe for an ad-free feed with the occasional bonus episode thrown in by heading to Apple Podcasts and clicking on The Big Story Plus. You can also write to us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. That's where we heard from Sarah. And you can call us and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is still in every podcast player, despite having a subscription on Apple Podcasts. And you can always hear the latest episode by asking your smart speaker to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.